uh, interrupted by somebody coming in, putting up Christmas decorations, and then uh, a busy shopper comes uh, bundling in. There's carolers come and form up and sing. There's a tree brought in and the tree is lit. There are presents piled up around the tree and then ho, 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 in bursts Santa. And at that point, a child in the audience, who was actually part of a play, says, I can't see Jesus. It's pretty clever, isn't it? Church services... 500 years ago, if you walked into one of them, you might say the same. I can't see Jesus. The conduct of the service was more a performance rather than participation by the people. The architecture, all focused in on the altar and what could be done there. The liturgy, what was said, was all in Latin. It all had the effect that it obscured Christ. By, and by obscuring Christ in church activity, Christ is obscured from salvation in the medieval church. That wonderful reality that we know of Christ's atoning death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The life-changing invitation that we know of justification by faith alone. The joyous, certain hope that we hang on to of eternal life with Christ by His resurrection from the dead. This was all obscured and marginalised for the medieval churchgoer. I can't see Jesus. Now the reformers put Jesus Christ back in the centre of everything. This was Cranmer's ambition. He said, we will reform the English church to the utmost of our ability and give our labour that both its doctrines and laws will be improved after the model of Holy Scripture. Uh, he regarded the Roman church practices of uh, beads and pardons and pilgrimages and other things that belonged to the Pope, he described them as weeds that needed to be pulled out. As Archbishop, as he visited parishes all across England, he says that from place to place he sought to eliminate any image which had any suspicion of devotion attached to it. So that near the end of his life he concluded this, all the doctrine and religion by our said Sovereign Lord King Edward VI is more pure and according to God's word than any that have been used in England these thousand years. It was actually for that statement that he ended up being thrown in prison because it was seen that he criticised the church and, and the monarchy for the previous thousand years. But he concluded that what was there at the end of his life was better than what had been there for the thousand years before because it was now more pure and according to God's Word. 
For Cranmer and the other reformers, everything that was to happen in the church service was to point people to Christ alone. So faith for salvation might rightly be in Christ alone. Now before we look at Hebrews 10 again and how the re-centralisation of Christ refocused the church in the 16th century, let's consider for a moment the problem that we have in 2017 of an obscured Christ. I don't need to tell you that Christianity is marginalised in 2017. Christianity is hardly mainstream or popular. But I wonder how much this marginalisation is because of the obscuring of Christ. Now I know that Jesus warned his followers that they, that we would be hated because he was hated. But when Jesus said this, he was talking about persecution, not marginalisation. Here's my thought, here's my question. How much do you think Jesus is actually unknown to the crowd round about us? And so unknown more than he's hated. And so could this marginalisation of Christ and Christianity round about us, could this be because Jesus is obscured in our lives? Obscured in our witness, obscured in the activity of our churches. So the people round about us kind of go, who is Jesus? Uh, Ten years ago, I was part of a high school scripture seminar uh, over in Western Australia. We spent a whole week in a high school, uh, they're doing uh, seminars and at one point I was leading a discussion group for Year 9 students. We had done this seminar, which was a big seminar on stage and then broken into these discussion groups and one of the teenagers in the group was particularly puzzled by what was going on but in the end asked the question that was on the lips of every student in this little discussion group with me, the five or six year nine students, and the teen said, I don't get it. Who is Jesus? I've never heard of him. Year nine student, ten years ago, in a public high school in Western Australia. Who is Jesus? Without doubt, Jesus Christ is a real historical figure who lived in Judea during the first 30 years of the first century. No credible historian will dispute this. Uh, John Dixon said uh, recently that he would eat a page of his Bible if someone could find a serious scholar who thought that Jesus didn't exist. Uh, John himself uh, is a historian, has a PhD and lectures in history as well as being a Christian pastor. Many Christian and non-Christian historians from the time of Jesus right through to today recognise though that there's something different about Jesus. Is he more than a man? There's something different about him. His teaching stands out. His miracles stand out. 
And then we've got to do something with his resurrection from the dead, which seems to be a historical certainty. So John Dixon, Christian historian, he says, there is a resurrection-sized hole in history. The only way to account for Jesus and the narrative of history is for Jesus to have been resurrected bodily, physically from the dead. Now, if that really happened, I believe it did, from history and from what the Bible says, then you've got to go, there's something different about Jesus. The more then we build up our understanding both of history and the historical record to Jesus that's recorded in the Bible, we see that Jesus is not just a man. The book of Hebrews opens with this majestic statement of who Jesus is. Do you want to turn back with me please to chapter 1? Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Uh, Who is Jesus? He he makes God known. He's the messianic heir of all things. He is the Christ, the King, through whom the whole of creation is waiting for. He's seen to there to be active in the creation of the world. He's the radiance of God's glory. He is responsible with His Father to sustain all things that go on in the universe. He provides forgiveness for sins. He rules now and into eternity in heaven. Looking at just these few verses alone, we see that Jesus Christ is at the centre of everything that God is doing. There's absolutely no obscurity, is there? Jesus is at the centre of God's salvation plans and we need Christ for salvation and we need nothing else. Turn with me please to Hebrews chapter 9. These are the couple of verses that lead into chapter 10. Remember those who wrote down the Bible for us, inspired by God, didn't write in chapters and verses. And these couple of sentences, verse 27, set up chapter 10 for us. Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and He'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Jesus Christ is at the centre of everything God is doing and at the centre of our salvation. Hebrews 10 then shows us two things about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the once for all sacrifice and number two, Jesus is the once for all mediator. Let's look at these two things together. Here in chapter 10, it talks about the law. It's talking about the Old Testament law The sacrificial law given by God with sacrifices and the priests 
lots of blood. It was all given to point people forwards to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So see there in verse 1, it calls the law, the sacrificial system given by God, it calls it a shadow, not the real deal, a shadow. Verse 3 said it was to be a reminder, a reminder of sins. The sacrificial system teaches God's Old Testament people of the seriousness of sin and the cost of forgiveness. But the sacrifice of bulls and goats, it does not effect forgiveness. See verse 4? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It all points to Christ. And so there in verses 5 to 7... Psalm 40 is applied to and fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 40, you can look it up later, is a psalm of deliverance, crying out to God uh, for deliverance. And that comes, deliverance comes not through sacrifices and offerings of a sacrificial system, but by the sacrificial offering of the body and blood of Jesus once for all. Let's pick it up in verse 10. By that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, the priest Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 18, And where these have been forgiven sins, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. The only sacrifice we need for salvation is Christ alone. Now, while this was a big issue among the people who were being addressed by the book of Hebrews, they were being drawn back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. They were in danger of obscuring Christ. Medieval churchgoers 500 years ago, they were being drawn to all kinds of practices and ceremonies within their church gatherings that obscured Christ. Now this is particularly the case with the Roman Catholic Mass. I want to say a couple of things this morning about the Mass. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church of today uh, celebrates a Mass. Some of us perhaps uh, have experienced it uh, or have family members, friends that are connected to it. I'm sure that almost all of us know someone who is uh, a a devout Roman Catholic and we seek to try and understand the the similarities and the differences uh, in our beliefs, in our doctrine. Now let me say a couple of things before I go into it a bit further. Uh, At no point should Reformation history be used as a license for Catholic bashing. That's not cool. Uh, And we need to be uh, careful, it's not helpful or accurate to lump the Catholic Church of today in with the medieval church of 500 years ago. Uh, That church uh, has changed, some quite radically, uh, some in other all kinds of directions. But we will come across... 
uh, Catholics and, and different things. I am going to attend a funeral mass uh, later this week. Barbara uh, mentioned in the prayers, thank you Barbara, that my grandfather died this week. Uh, I'll go off to his funeral this week uh, in Grafton and on Friday it will be a funeral mass. Sadly, it's the kind of practice that obscures Christ. Let's talk for a moment about Mass, whether it's part of a funeral uh, or part of a a regular gathering. The word Mass comes uh, from the Latin word hostia, which means victim. You see, the Mass is not the same as the Lord's Supper. It's not the same as communion or Eucharist. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. Mass is about a victim. Mass is a sacrifice. This is what the priest usually says in the Mass and the congregation responds. Pray, my brothers and sisters, that our sacrifice may be acceptable to God. He's talking about what is going to be offered on the table, the victim, the host, being the bread, being Jesus' body. And the people respond, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of His names for our good and the good of all His church. What is going to be sacrificed here in front of the people is to do something good for them. Uh, The Council of Trent, which met between 1545 and um, 1563, says this of the Mass. The Mass may properly be offered for the sins, punishments, satisfaction and other necessities for the faithful on earth as well as those who have died in Christ and are not wholly cleansed. So at a funeral, if you pay enough money, uh, you can have a funeral Mass so that the Mass be offered and sacrificed so that you might atone for the sins of the person who's dead to help them get to heaven. I've been to two or three funeral masses, my great-uncle, my grandmother, I'll go to one this Friday for my grandfather, and that exact sentence I know will be read out, that what is about to happen, and the more of us that participate in it, will help him flee purgatory, get away from hell, and perhaps make it to heaven. It obscures... Christ. The once for all sacrifice for sins is Christ alone. Now can I just say quickly, if you are somebody who uh, is with us from a a Catholic background, uh, I have also been to lots of Catholic churches that do things very differently to what I have just described. Um, and I have participated in them in different uh, kind of ways. I know there is a whole plethora of differences. Uh, what I'm helping us to see, us, what I'm helping us uh, see today, is that as we uh, know people and as we uh, are involved in, that we might steer away from and help us to not obscure Christ but magnify Christ. If you are here this morning, uh, I'd love to hear your story and hear your experience uh, of the Catholic Church. The second half of Hebrews 10 presents Christ 
as the once-for-all mediator between us and God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. These are great, great words. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Every time we see in the Old Testament someone have an encounter with the Holy God, it is a fearful moment. Because of Jesus we have an invitation to draw near to a holy God. It is possible, it is safe, it is good. See these words here that are in, from verse 19, words like confidence, a living way in the presence of a holy God, full assurance, hope. Chapter 9, verse 15 says, For this reason... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Christ is the once for all mediator. I'm going to share with you now the testimony of a lady by the name of Elizabeth Clark. Uh, this is a published uh, testimony. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've met her uh, at some, some time. Her face does look uh, familiar. And this is her story. Elizabeth says, I went to Catholic schools as a child and felt very committed to my Catholic faith. I always attended church. I brought my children up going to church. I made a lot of effort to make sure they understood Mass and prayed. I was very anxious that they hold on to the Catholic faith and I was able to convince their father that they should go to a Catholic school. Looking back, I took on board what suited me in the Catholic Church and rejected the rest. Things like confession and rules about contraception. But as I got into my 40s, I started to think through what I believed and it all seemed too vague. I started to meet with a group of work colleagues to pray. They would bring along their Bibles, so I started to bring along my Bible. But then I realised I didn't really know how to read the Bible, so they introduced me to study guides which I started to use to read the Bible. As I read the Bible, it opened up my eyes to so many things I was being taught in the Catholic Church that were irrelevant to faith in Jesus Christ. Then one of the women in the group I was praying with said, this is amazing, Jesus died to save us from our sins, we are no longer seen as sinners before God. At that moment, I had an incredible realisation that this was true. Up until then, I had the head knowledge 
but not the heart knowledge. Then all of a sudden, the superstition evaporated and the burden of whether or not I would go to heaven if I dropped dead tomorrow disappeared. I suddenly had assurance of God's gift of salvation. Initially, I felt very angry with the Catholic Church about those years of being misled over how we can relate to God through the saints and Mary rather than through Christ alone. Now I just feel sad. As my sister was dying of cancer, her Catholic in-laws in Ireland were holding masses and novenas for her. They kept sending her relics. I was able to talk to her about how these things aren't necessary and how you can speak directly to God in prayer through Christ alone. She accepted the gifts of relics, but I don't think she ever thought they were going to help her to be healed or that she needed them to assist in her prayers. I remember my brother asking me how to pray the rosary, a Roman Catholic prayer that involves repeating 50 times the prayer Hail Mary. I pointed him to Psalm 23 and Psalm 139 and encouraged him to pray the Lord's Prayer. As far as I know, that's what he did. I now constantly pray for revival in the Catholic Church from the top to the bottom that they might teach that we can be saved through Christ alone. Now, out of anything that we have said or thought about the Roman Catholic Church today, may this be our prayer too, that from the top to the bottom of every church in every corner of the world, that it might be taught that we can be saved through Christ alone. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, three concluding reasons why Christ alone matters today. Number one, a commitment to Christ alone ensures that Christ is not obscured in church gatherings. Everything that we do as we gather on Sundays, as we, as we meet during the week in different kind of ways, everything we do must be drawing attention to Jesus, who He is and what He has done for us. Our church is to be a Christ alone church. Number two, why does this matter? Commitment to Christ alone ensures that Christ is not obscured in our lives. I raised that question earlier on, that thought, maybe the reason that Christ is marginalised in our society is not so much that they hate Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. When people look at us, do they, when people look at our lives, not us as a community, you, me, when people see me, when they see how I act, when they see my commitments, when they see my priorities, when they hear me speak, is Christ obscured, marginalised, minimalised, or is he magnified in the way that you live your life? As people watch, is Christ magnified in everything? Third reason, commitment to Christ alone ensures all 
glory goes to God. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus being at the centre. And this is how it concludes in chapter 13. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the internal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.